0: Hello, Nazareth community. My name is Genevieve Fontana, and I'm the digital marketing student assistant for the alumni engagement team, host of the Flyers in Focus podcast, and now a sophomore music therapy student. I'd like to welcome you to Flyers in Focus, a monthly podcast where we have a conversation with Nazareth alums about their time at Naz and what they are up to today. Our guest today is Christopher Parmeter, a graduate from the Class of 2001 with degrees in both Mathematics and Economics. He is not only an Associate Professor of Economics at the Miami Herbert Business School, but he is an author, having co-written the books Applied Nonparametric, Econometrics, and Efficiency Analysis, a Primer on Recent Advances. Of all of his publications, most recently his work was featured in the New York Times article This Peeler Did Not Need to Be Wrapped in So Much Plastic, adding his economic background to research on Amazon's use of single-use plastic packaging. Christopher has received grants for his work most notably from the EPA, National Institute of Health, and the United States Department of Agriculture. He has over 3,643 citations. Let's hear how Christopher's time at NAS continues to help him through his life's work. Enjoy. Hello Nazareth community. My name is Genevieve Fontana, and today I will be interviewing Christopher Parmeter, alum from the class of 2001. Thank you so much, Chris, for speaking with me today.
1: You're most welcome.
0: So our first couple questions are, where do you work? And what are the main responsibilities of your position?
1: I am currently an associate professor and the graduate director for the PhD program at the University of Miami in the Miami Herbert Business School. And my primary day-to-day responsibilities are to teach classes both at the graduate and the undergraduate level. I also, being in charge of the graduate program, have to monitor and mentor our graduate students, um, the incoming students who are just there getting their feet wet all the way up to the students who are finalizing their dissertation. And I engage in various other service activities on the university. And I'm also you know, required to do research to, you know, promote our university as a, you know, leading place of academic scholarship. So, you know, lots to do.
0: Yes, lots of stuff. (laughs) Lots to do. Our next question is, how did you become interested in this field?
1: Well, it's interesting. When I was at NAS, I was a math major. I didn't know really too much about economics. And It turns out that there's a lot of applied mathematical concepts that sort of run hand in hand with economics. And at the end of my sophomore year, I had taken a vast majority of my math courses and wasn't really sure what I was going to do. And I had just taken an internship at Mercer in downtown Rochester, which is an actuary firm. And part of becoming certified to be an actuary is taking a bunch of exams. One of those exams happened to be economics and Talking with my academic advisor, it made sense to sort of go down the path of econ as a dual major to sort of help me with becoming an actuary. And lo and behold, I ended up liking that more than just doing mathematics. And by the end of my time at NAS, I had decided that I think continuing my education in economics was you know more of interest to me than being an actuary. And that's what kind of sold it for me.
0: Yes, that's awesome. Our third question is: What was your area of study at Nazareth, which you talked about a little bit, and how yep. do you connect your major with your current job position?
1: Well, <clears throat> yeah, so yeah, definitely was math. I, I came in; I knew right away as a freshman I wanted to be a math major. I was involved in all things math at Naz, the math club, and the the, the math modeling team, uh, all that all that good stuff. It in terms of economics, economics is really it's heavily entrenched in mathematics. And so it was kind of just a natural fit. I mean, if you're going to go to grad school and in sort of any of the applied sciences, having a background in mathematics is very useful. Uh, it could be in ecology, it could be in sociology, it could be in political science, it could be in statistics, data analysis. If you have a, a solid background in math, it's, it's just going to give you an additional leg up over other Individuals. It's not. It's not necessarily going to be the you know the, the 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 defining thing, but it certainly helps. So, yes.
0: Sure. And after um, you went to school at NAS, did you see yourself becoming a professor at all?
1: Oh, well, I don't know that when I first got to Binghamton, where I where I, I I got my my PhD, that I I had that in mind. I I just kind of had decided I wanted to keep learning, and a higher level degree seemed. The best way to do that, and in the course of the first few years there, I, I don't think I'd ever envisioned myself being a teacher or public speaking or anything of that nature. And it just kind of evolved, sort of slowly but surely, in the first few years that I was there. So I, I don't know. I, I never really thought of myself as a teacher. I even have a hard time now th- seeing myself as a teacher, but certainly back then, there's no way that any, any of my classmates or fellow alumni would, would ever have like, you know, sort of pegged me as being a teacher. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) But now you're loving it. So that's great.
1: No, no. I love being a teacher now. I'm very, I, I love my job. I I wouldn't even call it a job. I'd call it a career. I I don't dread going to work. I, I I get to meet new people all the time, go to different places, uh, either virtually or, you know, prior to all this. (laughs) So yeah, I, I got to do all of that and I still get to do all of that and it's a lot of fun and I enjoy it. But, you know, at, the, at that age, 21, 22, 23, when I first got to Binghamton, I don't know that I had ever thought of being a professor. I don't, I don't think that's really what I envisioned myself doing. So, I mean, yeah, it happens for a lot of people. They just when you're young, you don't necessarily know what you want to do. And, and you know, more power to the people that do. Sure. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: um, the next question is what skills have you gained from your education at Nazareth that have prepared you for your current role?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I think the best part about being at Naz is it's a, it's a liberal arts school. So you kind of, you have your sort of core set of courses that you have to take, you know, English courses and science courses and language courses and math courses, even if you're not a math major. And I think that's actually really beneficial because it sort of forces you or it doesn't force you, but it opens you up to just various ways of thinking. And as you progress in your life, you kind of become entrenched in a, in a particular way of thinking. And, you know, I can always resort back to various courses that I had at NAS, where we would discuss things that weren't necessarily my worldview, but you learn how to accept that. And, you know, I think at a lot of schools, like for instance, even at Miami Herbert business school, you get a degree there, you know, you're not really taking a lot of courses outside of the business school. So it's not clear how exposed you are to various schools of thought in, in things, unless you go and seek it yourself, of course, but at NAS, it's sort of just, it's part of the curriculum. And I think it's something that most liberal arts schools really offer. And, you know, NAS is exceptional. At it, so that's what I always sort of can draw back on. You know, I, at least once or twice a week, I can always remember, something i read at nas or something that somebody said at nas that you know just helps me out in terms of keeping me grounded and not always thinking i'm right and other people are are incorrect so
0: yeah and i think that kind of goes back to our last question and like if people don't exactly have all the pieces together the liberal arts education kind of opens your mind and helps you figure out like what you like and what you don't like and and i know you And I know you mentioned before that some of your most memorable courses were the you know the core classes not necessarily your major classes so
1: yeah you know I I couldn't probably tell you too much about each specific math class that I took at NAS but I can very vividly remember Eastern religion, and you know, an English class with Dr. Madigan, and the French class, and the French house that's hopefully still there on Nas campus, and yeah, <laughs> you know, I took a science fiction class, a night class where you know, you know, we're reading all kinds of really crazy things, and you know, those are the courses that I can, you know, still pop out. I can remember everyone was terrified of the, you know, the the first physics class. I can't even remember the guy's name who was teaching it, but you know, everyone was terrified of that course because it, you know, the guy just had no sort of concern for the students. You know, grade well-being. <laughs> so, you know, I, I I can still remember all of that stuff quite quite vividly. Can't remember most of the teachers' names, though, of course. But I don't know what that says. But
0: well, memorable experiences—that's the important thing.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Okay, so at Nazareth, we have the Spark Grant for undergraduate students, as well as other grant opportunities for graduate students. Would you like to talk about some of the grants you received in the past, as well as any tips and tricks for writing them?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, a lot of academic work, depending on the field that you're in, is sort of contingent on getting external funding, whether it's for purchasing data or purchasing equipment or travel to a particular place to conduct your studies. It's sort of, it's one of the you know, sort of the underlying pieces of being able to do good research is finding, uh, uh, you know, other agencies that, you know, see your vision, see your passion for a particular uh, academic endeavor that you have, and they'll fund it. Um, I didn't know actually too much about it when I was in grad school. But once I graduated, my first job was in the, the, the ag and life sciences department at Virginia Tech. And there, a lot of the research, I said the vast majority of it is, is through sort of external funding. And very quickly when I got there, I I, I was working on uh, a grant that was funded or that was provided through the Environmental Protection Agency, which uh, if you do any things sort of related to issues related to clean clean water, clean air, things of this nature, odds are that you'll at some point circle back to the EPA. Uh, and so over the course of my you know, 15 years having my PhD, I've, I've received several internal and external grants, either through the university that I've been at here at UM or at Virginia Tech, and also through various funding agencies, the uh, EPA, of course, National Institute of Health, uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmosphere uh, Administration. I would say the best thing to do when you apply for a grant is just to be sort of very precise in terms of why you need funding and what you're going to do with it, you know, it's somebody else's money, and you don't really want to kind of beat around the bush, so to speak, you you want to get right to the point of what it is you're going to do and what you're kind of anticipating this money is going to help you do and sort of set up a very clear line of sight from getting the money to getting the, uh, you know, the, the the final result, you know, so that's the best advice I could give. I don't know that that's really any advice at all. But that's the best no, that's
0: great give. advice. Be specific.
1: Be specific. Yes. <laughs> be specific. Don't be vague.
0: Don't be vague. Yes. <laughs> be vague. What is your most um, proud moment on the job?
1: Oh, well, well, that's an interesting question. I
0: or you know, one of them. I,
1: I think it was a few years. I, I can't remember the year. I think it was in 2013. Uh, so every year they have uh, a list of. Um, uh, um, the, the, the business school, they have, you know, sort of awards for, you know, researcher of the year and staff member of the year and, you know, various teaching awards and things of this nature. And I, I, I don't pay much attention to those things. I, I, I really, I never attended them. And I remember, I think it was 2013, my department head was asking me if I was going to go, which was very bizarre because, you know, he never asked anyone if they're going to go and, I told him, no, I'm not going to go. And he says, well, I think you should go. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not going to go. I you know, have more important things to do. And he's like, no, no, I really think you should go. And eventually it dawned on me that the reason he was asking me to go is because I must have been like nominated for something. So <laughs> I acquiesced and I went and then lo and behold, I won. And it turns out that there was a student that I had met when I first got to UM, who took one of the very first courses that I taught that just, I guess he had been, you know, sort of influenced by that course. And it, had an impact on him and he had nominated me for, you know, a, a teaching award. And then I subsequently won. So I think I was proud of that because I wasn't really trying to win any awards. And yet it was something that, you know, it, it's always nice when your hard work pays off, but, you know, I've, I've had lots of good memories. I always feel good whenever any of the students in the PhD program graduate and successfully defend their dissertation and, and find a job, you know, I always feel good when undergrads are graduating, and they're applying to grad school, and they get in, you know, I can kind of relate to that feeling from when I was at NAS. So I have lots of moments, but that's kind of one that sticks out, because it was really completely, for me, at least unexpected.
0: Yeah, I love like the hint, hint, like, yeah, you won. Like you should I'm a little count.
1: dense. So, you know, it took him probably five emails before it finally, you know, got his <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay,
0: so what are some challenges you face
1: Oh, there's lots of challenges we face. So, you know, getting a PhD in, in pretty much any field, it's, it's not econ specific in any field, you, you know, it, it's actually, it's, it's a very, you know, at higher level academics is, is very competitive um, in terms of publishing and getting grants and things of this nature. And at a school like Miami, that is sort of internationally recognized you know, there's fierce competition for publishing your papers with other schools that are also internationally recognized, and so um, you know it's hard to publish on a consistent basis in 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 top journals in your field, be it economics or statistics or mathematics or sociology or biology or any of the any any field really. If you're trying to sort of publish your research in top journals, it, it turns out to be surprisingly more competitive than probably a layperson might imagine, and so it's. That's always an ongoing challenge is trying to get your stuff through the reviewing process and get it published in a timely manner in, in good journals that bring sort of notoriety and recognition to yourself and your department and your university. So that's always a challenge. Um, and, you know, in, in on the teaching side of things, it's a challenge to teach the same material all the time, you know, semester after semester and make it so that, every time can be new so that the students feel like you're really teaching to them and not just running through a series of notes that you have in it. It doesn't really matter if they're there or not, you know, as a, as a teacher, that's always a challenge that I, I look forward to is try to make things interesting to that particular group of students so that they feel like I'm there and I'm teaching to them and I'm not just sort of, well, this is how I get my paycheck and I'm just putting some stuff up on the board for you and you know, you, you do what you want with it. So.
0: It sounds like you definitely do make an impact on your students, though, especially with your award. Well, I
1: try, you never know. You have to talk to them, (laughs) you have to talk to them.
0: Okay, the next question is, what experiences at NAS and outside of NAS have helped you get where you are today?
1: Well, you know, when I was at NAS, I think one of the big things that really helped me, and and, I mean, I'd be different for everybody, but having the, Having the, the internship for two years at Mercer uh, really uh, helped me a lot. It just kind of helped get me in the mode of being able to work and be a student and sort of understanding that once I graduate, there's going to be this whole new life that's going to be dramatically different than being at, at college anywhere, NAS and, and, and other places. And so that really helped. And I mean, obviously, being at NAS and then finding that internship through the math club was extremely rewarding. Um, my roommate, who's he's still my best friend, Jared, he already had a job. I remember when we started, you know, we were roommates for three years and he had already had a job. And so I, I can always just remember him leaving on the weekends and going and working. And so, you know, having some kind of employment wherever it is while you're in college, I think keeps you sort of grounded so that, yeah, you're enjoying college, you're having fun, you're being a, you're being a young adult uh, and enjoying those years, which you, you most likely will never ever get back. speaking from somebody who's in their forties now, but at the same time, you know, you have a long life ahead of you and you got to make sure you're also prepared for that as well. And so having some type of employment is be it on campus or be it off campus is a, is a useful, you know, it's a useful skill to start working on right away, I think. Yeah. So, and you know, afterwards I, you know, I, I, I don't do much, you know, I, I do my job and I try to do really good at my job and I I try to be a good person and that's about it. So not much else to say there.
0: (laughs) Okay. The next question is what are some projects that you have recently been working on? And I know there are probably a lot.
1: (laughs) Well, I've been, uh, I had a recent uh, op-ed that was published with one of my colleagues, Pamela Geller here in the anthropology department that appeared in the New York Times that's sort of spun off from a lot of the internal grant work that we've done related to um, sort of the proliferation of plastics in the last 20 to 30 years. Um, A lot of this actually got based off of some early research that was done by another one of our colleagues here that found microplastics, which are these tiny little shreds of plastic that come off as plastic starts to deteriorate. Um, And being down here in Miami, you know, know, you're always aware of like all things ocean related. And so uh, microplastics are starting to show up in the in the in the food chain for for fish. And naturally, if you eat fish and fish have microplastics, then you're going to have microplastics. And so this sort of spawned a, a big interest for us in sort of why is plastic so prevalent and what are the types of things that we can think of potentially doing to to, to mitigate these issues. And there's not really any one smoking gun solution, but that's something that I've been working on the last few years that sort of, you know, at least, you know, that that got spun off into that. Um, And then sort of other things that I'm working on. I'm very interested in working on types of empirical problems related to uh, what we might consider to be um, variables which are not measured correctly so for instance, we might think of something, let's say that's quite controversial like COVID. And we wanna know how many people are infected with this, this virus. And you know, in this case here, the numbers that are reported are most likely to be what's called an undercount in that they're only the only people who are really being represented in the data are those that have actually gone out and gotten a test. And that test has come back and said, yes, you have COVID. If, you're, if you have COVID and you're not getting tested, there's no way that anyone's going to know this. And so this is a classic example of an undercount. A different example of an undercount might be asking somebody how many hours of TV you watch. And in general, if you watch very little TV, it's likely that you understand and recognize that you watch very little TV. But if you watch lots of TV, you're, you're probably likely to undercount it and and not say you watch as much. It could be you answer on a survey, you might say, how much do you drink during a week? And you're kind of shy about really admitting that you know you have a six pack a night, and so you only report that you have one beer a night. So there's all kinds of variables that that have these undercounts, and there's some actually that have overcounts. And this area of um, in in the social sciences, economics in, in general, is very interesting because when you have variables like this, it can really cause lots of problems for how you think about measuring things and understanding things relative to if something had been measured quite accurately. And so I've been spending a lot of time working on this. And in fact, the reason I brought up COVID is because I, I have a paper that actually applies this directly to COVID and it finds out at least in the, if you look worldwide, you you find significant undercounting in COVID, both COVID cases and deaths. And it's, it's a slightly different approach to let's say standard epidemiological models. So yes.
0: Yeah, those are some of the
1: things I'm working on.
0: And I think it's important for like the Nazareth community to note that when I was thinking of economics, I wasn't thinking of the environmental tie it has and the health tie that it has. So it's everywhere. And I just think that's so interesting, all the work that you're doing.
1: Well, you know, I would say to anybody that's kind of looks at econ sort of in this bland way is that economics at its core, at least if you're going in the microeconomic route is is really all about incentives, uh, and you know when I teach here at UM, I, I tell students the same thing: is that you know you might find economics to be very boring, and that's fine. But it 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 anything that can be sort of connected back to how people behave in the face of incentives really falls under the umbrella of economics. So it could be something as simple as you know an incentive to to go fast or slow on the road when you're speeding, right? If you if you know that you're not going to get caught, you're most likely to be speeding. And there's this, but you know, like the rule of seven, right? If you go seven miles over the speed limit, you're letting, you know, I, I don't know how it is in New York, but down in Florida, you know, that seems to be right around the the, 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 the sweet spot, but that's yeah. really an incentive. There's an incentive in place that, or in this case, a disincentive, whereby, you know, government actors put on, you know, constraints on economic co- consumers and, you respond to those types of things. And it could be anything, the environment, health, uh, you know, taxes, the, the more mundane stuff, trade, those types of things. But, you know, on the job, how, how hard you work at your job, all kinds of things are, they all boil down to incentives. Everything is sort of, at least if you're, if you're an economist, that's how you think about things. You think about things through the lens of incentives. And as I tell my students, or really anybody that, you know, wants to know more about economics, it's, you can kind of, drive the behavior you want from anybody simply by aligning the incentives correctly, right? If you have the right incentive in place, you'll get people to do pretty much exactly what you want them to do. You just have to find the right incentive. And a lot of times when you see people making bad choices, it's not that they're malignant actors or they're, they're, they're not smart or whatever. It's usually that you just don't have the right incentives in place. And if you could fix that, you'd fix a lot more problems. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of problems where finding the right incentive is is difficult, if not impossible. So.
0: Yeah. Okay, we're on our last question. Sure. What advice would you give to a current member of the Nazareth community?
1: Well, I mean, if it was a student, uh, you know, I would just tell them that, you know, they're in a good spot. Naz is a great school. It's small, which at the you know, at the time of my life when I was there, I really like it. I'm at i UM now. Um is a fairly large university. Uh, but at the time where I was, when I was, you know, 18, 19, 20, I I wanted a smaller community and NAS was perfect for me. It's uh, you know, it's in a it's in a it's in a good spot. I I I I still miss upstate New York and Rochester. So, you know, you're in a good spot, work hard and you know, that degree should pay off in, in ways that you probably can't even fathom at your, in your, in your current stage. Yeah. So,
0: okay. So again, I want to remind you that you can connect with Chris on Flyer Connect. If you have any questions, thank you again, Chris, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today and sharing your story. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again to Christopher Parmeter for sharing your story. Be sure to check out our Instagram at nazalumni for pictures that Christopher has shared with us and to learn more about the amazing things he is working on. You can also watch our full conversation with Chris on the Nazareth YouTube channel and view this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. We thank you all for listening. Remember, you can contact Chris on Flyer Connect if you have any additional questions or if fellow alums would like to reconnect. We will also have an opportunity to submit questions to Chris on our Instagram page later this week. Tune in next month for our next episode of Flyers in Focus. I'm your host, Genevieve Fontana. And remember, every day is a good day to be a Golden Flyer. Thank you for listening.